Welcome to THK Toku Heroes and Kaiju. I am Seb Gaudet, and I am joined once again by the great Dustin Mills. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't know, I didn't know you were going to stop, so I was just waiting. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. We're here once again to inflict our ramblings about tokusatsu and kaiju films onto you all. Today, talking about a series that's pretty near and dear to both of us, I think. It's uh, definitely among uh, my favorite piece of tokusatsu out there. We'll be talking about the 90s Gamera Trilogy, directed by Shusiki Kaneko. Before I begin, I just want to give a very quick rundown of what Gamera is, in case any of our listeners aren't familiar with it. Uh, basically, around the midpoint of the 60s, around 1964, Daiei decided they wanted to enter the uh, kaiju game. Uh, they decided to create their own giant monster, which would have been a giant rat film called Nizura. A bunch of production problems happened. Nizura never ended up getting made, but elements of it ended up being utilized to create Gamera, which was a giant black and white monster movie about this flying, fire-breathing turtle that goes on a rampage. It was a pretty moderate success, and it led to a series of increasingly low-budget, kid-friendly sequels where Gamera fought an assortment of pretty goofy monsters. Come 1995, they decided they wanted to resurrect Gamera after a 15-year hiatus. They decided that they wanted to give him a proper, serious-minded reboot, and the result was Gamera Guardian of the Universe. The script was handed over to Kazuri, uh, Kazunori Ito, who wrote Ghost in the Shell, as well as the first and second Pat Labor movies, for any anime fans who happen to be listening. And it's definitely one of the more sophisticated toku movies of the 90s. It's very slick, Kaneko's direction is pretty stylish, and it was the first in a line of films that, as I said before, are very near and dear to me. So before we get into specifics, I'm going to hand it over to Dustin, and I want to hear his thoughts on Gamera, Guardian of the Universe. So, when um, I watched it earlier this week, unlike the three Godzilla films that we watched in the first episode, these have not run together so much in my head, because I think the three of them are different enough from each other. When I was done watching it, I, I, I kind of had to sit and think about other Toku movies of the era, and just other toku movies specifically kaiju movies in general and i kind of think that gamera guardian of the universe might be the single best meat and potatoes kaiju movie ever made um and that's not to say it's even the best of the trilogy necessarily i just think as a as a simple well executed story that ends with two monsters fighting in japan I don't know if you can do much better. The the human parts are well are very clear and uncluttered and when I say simple I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in like it, they're very streamlined. There's not a lot of chuffa. And then the monster stuff is so inventive and so well done and the two elements the the special effects sequences and the 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 regular filming are so well integrated. And the editing is so tight. Like, it's just, it, it is executed. I Actually, this entire trilogy is this way. They are executed with the sort of, like, preciseness that you see in animated films. And I kept thinking that the entire time. Like, I could feel the storyboards as I was watching and knew that, like, 
these were nobody was flying by the sea of their pants when they made these movies. They're not shot for coverage. They're every shot was planned. Every everything was executed the way you could tell they they prepared a lot to make this movie and then executed it to the best of their abilities. And what you get is just a really amazing kaiju film. But like like I said, meat and potatoes. Like a very like it is very much like set up the monsters, get them to be in the same place at the same time. They fight it out. It's meat and potato. I keep seeing meat and potatoes over and over again. Maybe I'm hungry. I don't know. But but that's the best way I can describe it. Just like the 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 cliche, the the what you think of a kaiju movie being, that's what this is, but executed almost perfectly, I think. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. It's uh the script is very, very basic. You could tell that Ito, while working his way around what Gamera is and trying to find ways to make him work in the 90s, managed to tap into exactly what makes the genre so appealing on paper, but is rarely executed as well as this is. Because when you get right down to it, the human characters, they aren't that interesting necessarily from this point on, but they're all well-defined. We know... Their personalities almost from the get-go when we meet them. And the monster stuff and the human stuff is pretty well balanced, I'd say. I didn't go too far into the plot of this, and that's mainly because it's not necessarily that plot-heavy of a film. It's basically just these giant bird-like bat creatures called Gaios, which is the closest thing to an arch-enemy Gamera has in the franchise. They appear... Gamera, who in this universe was created by Atlanteans to defend against the Gaios, shows up at the same time, and the humans kind of spend the rest of the runtime trying to figure out if Gamera's on their side or not. And as simple as that plot is, you get so invested in every single element of it, because the performances are so strong in this. That's kind of what took me back this time rewatching it. And we'll talk about them in a bit because we do end up following these characters through all three movies. Um, before I go into the production history, I just wanted to know what you thought of the uh, approach to the kaiju as characters in this movie. Uh, I think it, it, I was actually trying to pinpoint this because, and I don't know if it's just because I have an affection for Gamera to begin with. But it's kind of like the reaction that I had to him when Godzilla Jr. shows up in versus Destroya, where I just immediately like him. Um, and I, I think a lot of it has to do with the actual physical design of the characters. I think the fact that Gamera is, for all intents and purposes, a giant turtle, which is something that people can relate to. And if you think turtles are cute, which I do, then he has that working in your favor. He has very human eyes, but they're done in a way that is it works unlike Godzilla and Godzilla returns. He also has human eyes and they just look bad, but, but for some reason, Gamera's eyes work in his favor. And then the Gauss or Jouse or whatever the hell you want to call them. Cause they say both, both ways in the movie. Uh, they are kind of gross looking. They're always a little slick. They look, the Gauss look like you don't want to touch them. Um, and they're angular and their eyes are set on the side of their heads. Uh, Gamera's looking forward. So the, you immediately read the Gauss as being animalistic and kind of yucky. And Gamera, you kind of just, I don't know, you, you, you immediately trust him. And I think it has a lot to do with the design. 
Um, as for the, the, the backstory of like where they came from, because uh, my understanding is that the Gauss were also created by the ancient Atlanteans, maybe as a weapon that they, they later realized had gotten out of control, and that's why they create Gamera to stop it. Um, I feel like that is the one thing, and we, we can get into this later, but I feel like that backstory stuff is the one thing that gets a little muddy as the trilogy goes on. But uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much how I feel about them. I think that, that Gamera is a fantastic hero monster, and I think the Gauss are a perfect villain monster yeah i agree and it's pretty cool because the movie plays around with the initial uncertainty of whose side gamer is on but from the moment he appears on screen you're invested in him because he is designed in a way that's honestly he's pretty cute in this one yeah. and just lovable and you want to hug him and the gauss or gauss whatever they are so disgusting they look like plague birds yeah like something that yeah, they're very vulture-like, and uh, I also wanted to take a moment to just mention how good the suit performances are, because Gamera's not an easy creature to play. He's very bulky, but uh, Naoki Manabe and Jun Suzuki, who both swapped here and there during production playing Gamera, both do a good job of selling the physicality. I also wanted to mention that Yumi Kaneyama, who plays the giant Gaios, or Jouse, is the first known woman to have played a kaiju oh, wow. in a tokusatsu film. Uh, Shinji Higuchi casted her in the hopes that it would open the doors for more women to work on toku stuff. That's interesting. I didn't I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess this is a good time to segue into our human cast, by the way, because, again, I mentioned it earlier, but I really ended up being invested in this cast this time around. In our lead, we have uh, Akira Onodera as Kusanagi, who we follow through most of these movies. We have Ayako Fuji uh, Fujitani. I'm going to mess some of these names up, but she plays Asagi, the girl who forms the bond with Gamera, who also happens to be Steven Seagal's daughter, I recently discovered. Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. I had no idea. And then uh, um, his son is in um, Death Trance. Yeah, that's right. I don't think either of them talk to him anymore. Well, who would? Exactly. Uh, my personal favorite is uh, Yuki Jiro Hotaru, who plays Inspector Osaka. Yeah, and I, is... I recognized him immediately. Um, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I recognized him. Uh, yeah, no, he's uh, he goes through such an arc <laughs> over the course of these three he movies. He has more of an arc than anybody else, honestly, like more than Asagi. Yeah, I know. Um, we also have... Uh, Hirotaro Honda as Mr. Saito, our kind of semi-governmental human antagonist. He's not that villainous, but he's a bit of a jerk. Kaneko said that they approached him the way he approaches any government official, which is totally untrustworthy. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's funny because he because um, he shows up later again, and you, I kept expecting him to become a villain of some kind, and he doesn't. It's just then. That in every scene with him, he's a he's a jerk ass. <laughs> like he, he never does anything overtly villainous. He's just he's just a jerk. He has one line in this one where he's sitting in a boardroom and he says, "So we have Gamera and Jouse. This is completely out of my wheelhouse, but we gotta call him something." And I think that summed up the character pretty well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Uh, beyond that, we also have Tsuyoshi Ihara as Yoshinari, who is our, I guess, our male lead, I describe him as. And Shinobu Nakayama as Mayumi, who's an orthonologist who ends up on the trail of the, the Jouse, and who also returns later on. And that pretty much rounds up everyone. It's a pretty lean cast in the sense that there's only four or five we really follow over the course of these three movies. But everyone is totally 100% committed in this. Yeah, they are. And I appreciated the small cast after watching the Heisei Godzilla movies because those have the, all those casts are gigantic. And, and as a result, a lot of them don't get, get much to do. But um, pretty much everyone gets a gets their moment um, in this in Guardian of the Universe specifically, but also throughout the three movies. Yeah, uh, we mentioned before that Osako is the one who ends up getting the bigger arc out of everybody. But honestly, everybody goes through a little bit of growth here and there over the course of the three movies. Some are a little underutilized, but we'll talk about that as we go through each film. I think that what really separates this one in, is besides like the size of the cast from the Heisei Godzilla movies is that these all feel like real people caught up in a strange situation whereas the Heisei Godzilla movies kind of feel more like genre tropes yeah I agree living in a genre movie I agree or archetypes I feel like what really kind of makes this movie shine besides the cast and the writing is the fact that Kaneko and Higuchi, uh, Shinji Higuchi, who was the uh, special effects director on this, who would later go on to be a pretty big toku director in his own right, they seem to be in perfect tandem with each other. Like, everything melds so beautifully, and there's never... Oftentimes with kaiju movies, there's a, like, a gap between the human stuff and the toku stuff where I can see that a different director worked on this. But... The entire time I watched this movie, I was kind of in awe of how well it all gels together. It does. It gels really well, but but it, but I don't think... I was actually going to say this earlier. I don't think that it feels like they have the same style, though. Like, the, the, human, the human parts are shot and edited differently than the, the actual tokusatsu sequences, but they complement each other. Um where it doesn't feel they don't feel disconnected but I, but I could see the clear delineation between the way Higuchi was editing and you know or planning for edits and Kanako was setting up shots and stuff like that so um and I I want I should look into this because I mentioned this before that you know it, it was it has the precision of an animated film because Animated movies are edited before they're animated. You know what I mean? Like they're all edited in storyboard. They know where the cuts are. They know where what each shot is. Yada yada yada. They don't. They can't. You can't do coverage in an animated film, and that's the way these movies feel, especially the kaiju sequences. Um, but beyond just having that feel, I feel like Higuchi draws heavily from anime. I I, I, I detect a lot of anime influence um, in certain. Uh, just camera shots and certain even just fighting moves that get used like they felt very very anime inspired and um, I, I I love that I, I, I've you know I've heard people complain before about like when movies kind of imitate uh, animation and anime specifically but whenever that happens in a movie I actually get really excited about it <laughs> I love it there's um 
we, we will be going into spoilers, just so that everybody knows that. Uh, there's a moment towards the end that feels especially anime-esque to me, and it's when Gamera kills the last Jouse, mm -hmm. and they have, like, those cut back and forths from Asagi to Gamera to Jouse, and then he just blows her up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the whole movie kind of has a bit of an anime vibe to it. Maybe that's because of who wrote it, but the characters in this feel a bit more like anime archetypes than kaiju archetypes to me. Kaneko's direction during the human segments is interesting. For those who don't know, his background before going into quote-unquote legitimate film was he was a pink director. Oh, I didn't he know made that. erotic films. Yeah. Yeah, he did softcore comedies, and then he did a horror film called My Soul is Slashed, which was a vampire film, and that got him a job in America doing Necronomicon, and that got him Gamera. And his direction, especially during the early scenes when people are getting attacked and killed by the Jouse, feel a bit more influenced by Western horror than anything else. And that vibe kind of persists through all three movies, I think. For sure. Yeah, I, I I actually detected that more in the second film than the first film. Uh, but yeah, I agree. Um, but I think maybe the reason he his stuff jibes so well with Higuchi's segments or parts of the film, the kaiju stuff, is because he is very deliberate, which may maybe comes from doing the, the Pinku movies because those are probably very low budget and you have to be smart about your staging and your blocking and how much you're shooting and stuff like that. Um, but I always appreciate watching a movie and not being able to see the coverage being shot. I appreciate being able to see like, no, the director set this up. There's blocking. Like this feels deliberate. It wasn't like we'll decide later in editing. They decided on the day how that scene was going to play out. And uh, all three of those, these movies have that. And I really appreciate it. Yeah, and you know, that actually actually brings me to an interesting note I was going to bring up, which is, reportedly, all three of these cost less than any of the Heisei Godzilla movies did. That's wild. Which, it, it is wild, because these look so much better. Especially, um, especially uh, uh, Revenge of Eris, uh, because that one, I was like, there are moments in this that look better than modern movies <laughs> like <laughs> uh, yeah well i mean we'll get to that when we get there but i i had a very similar thought but i guess what according to higuchi at least what separated Daie from toho at this point is that they were given more time they had a much longer schedule they had less money but much longer schedules speaking of toho seb maybe you know the toho logo comes up before the Daie logo mm -hmm. on these movies so is that Toho just distributing, or what, what role did they play in the production? Yeah, they distributed them okay. theatrically. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Toho primarily works as a distributor before they're a production company. I see, I see. Uh, yeah. But so the Godzilla films are just, like, one of the few things they actually produce themselves? Yeah, and, like, every few years they do, like, well, not every few years, but, like, they do a few big productions a year okay. themselves. Okay. Yeah. And they also happen to own Japan's biggest uh, line of movie theaters, Toho Cinemas. Oh, that's convenient. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> I, another thing I wanted to touch upon was the score by Kao Otani, who, was a, uh, who is a regular of Kaneko's. He scored a lot of his films. And again, I hate to keep comparing it to the Heisei Godzilla movies, 
but the music in these movies is so much better. Yeah, it's it's so it, so much better. Well, it's better than most of the. Uh, I, I I would put it on par with like the score for Destroya, but yeah. but much better than the others for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that about covers Guardian of the Universe for me. Unless you had more to say. Um. No, not really. I. I. You know. I guess I'll just throw this in there, and this will come up again. Is like I've mentioned it before, but. I'm a big special effects nerd and uh, maybe not in the way like that most people would think, but I'm always impressed with the way, you know, effects are combined and made to feel part of the world. And I feel like uh, guardian of the universe excels at that. And it only gets better as the movies go on. Yep. 100% agreed. So the film ended up being both a financial and surprisingly critical success, especially overseas i mean one of the uh if you ever had the old adv vhs tape it has a quote from roger ebert praising it um so of course a sequel was immediately ordered and the next year it got released gamma 2 attack of legion pits gamma against a race of insectoid ex extraterrestrials which uh leads to some pretty nifty gross buggy horror sequences that really make this one stand out for me most of the same cast returns with Akira Ohashi now playing Gamera. They actually had a different actor for Gamera in each movie, which is interesting. And uh, Mizuo Yoshida as the villain Legion, who would go on to play Godzilla in Kaneko's GMK. Uh, I, that's about it for introductions. Let's hear what Dustin had to say about Gamera Attack of Legion. So I, I think that the movie is excellent, but I also think it's the weakest in the trilogy. Um, it, 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 it gets a little bogged down in not as bad as the Heisei Godzilla movies, but they start to bring in the like bureaucracy element and the military gets more involved and, and it, that stuff. I just, it's so standard and every, and every time I see it in a kaiju movie, I kind of start to tune out because I'm just like, okay, we're going through the motions with the military and yada, yada, yada. This one hit it harder than the other two films. Um, I also think that Legion being of alien origin is kind of lame. Uh, whereas the, the, the Gauss were, um, you know, kind of in a way tied to Gamera, like they're birthed in the same way. And, and they, and they both have this more like spiritual kind of concept going on to have the alien just, or have the enemy in this film just be an alien uh, that's trying to, you know, like populate as many worlds as it can. It's fine. It functions. It's just so much less interesting than the first film or the third film. Uh, but that being said, this does have some really, really cool, like suitmation stuff going on. Uh, I watched just a little bit of the behind the scenes for the special effects on the Blu-ray. Cause I, I just wanted to know how they were operating Legion, like the main giant Legion creature. And uh, it's really interesting because it has it, it. Here's something that all three of these movies do really well, and I think maybe Legion does the best out of the three. The monsters don't really read as guys in suits so much. They've done enough to mess with the shape and the silhouette of the design to make these not just look like a guy in a rubber suit. Um, with Gamera, it has a lot to do with his head and arm placement. Um, with Legion, it has to do with the fact that Legion has no arms. And is uh, multi-limbed. I think Legion has six 
walking appendages mm-hmm. and then all kinds of like other appendages for attacking. Um, and in but the behind the scenes, they showed that it's it's going to be hard to describe on a podcast, but basically you had there were two people inside the Legion suit. Uh, one person standing upright, only controlling Legion's head. They basically had two handles and they're controlling Legion's head. And then behind them being dragged was another person lying on his back with his arms controlling one set of Legion legs and his legs controlling another set of Legion legs. So his entire job was just wiggling his four limbs around, uh, controlling all of Legion's weird appendages. And then you had someone who just did the front walking and driving the head. Uh, but the effect is that it really breaks up the shape. It doesn't like it just doesn't read as a person in a suit, um, which to a degree helps with the believability. But I I love kaiju movies so much that when I watch them, I my brain doesn't even register guys in suits really. Like even in the stuff where it should be more obvious, like Ultraman, you know, I don't really think about it until later. If I force myself to think about it, I can think about it. But I'm just like, yeah, it's a monster. Like that's just what my brain does. <laughs> Um, but I, I thought this one was excellent. I think it's better than most of the Godzilla Heisei movies, but just, it's just doesn't have the, the punch or the staying power of the first movie or the third movie. Yeah. I'm, I'm inclined to agree. This was always my least favorite of the three. I I actually used to not like this one at all. I like it more now. I, I recognize it as a good example of the genre, but Going from the first one to this one, the human element is just so much weaker, and we spend more time on it. Yeah. And, man, that hurts it. This one does a lot of the characters established in the first one kind of dirty as well, especially Asagi. Yeah, which I thought was weird. Uh, I, I kind of don't understand why they didn't stick with the... Maybe it was a scheduling thing or a money thing, who knows, but I would have liked to have just seen everyone come back. Yeah, because Asaki shows up towards the end of the second act and plays a pretty small supporting role. And Osako only appears in one scene. And it's a great scene. It's yeah. pretty funny. Uh, for those that don't know, we were talking about this character earlier. He was an inspector in the first one. He's since retired and now works at a brewery in this one. Well, and... I don't know if he retires so much as loses his job for being a coward. <laughs> because he, yeah. he he chickens out as soon as, as the... Um, the the gals show up uh he's i don't i don't think he's the first person to see a gals in the first movie but he's one of the first people to report it i think um in legion he is the first human being to see a legion creature um he's yeah he's working at the brewery and then legion comes in and they eat uh they eat glass for the or they break glass down because they fuel themselves on silicon i think is the idea mm-hmm. um but yeah, this is an important part of his arc because essentially Osako's arc is he keeps seeing monsters and it keeps making his life worse. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Going like back to Asagi especially, there's so much stuff that they could have done with her because she's given a bond with Gamera in the first movie. That is touched upon here, but it barely factors into the story. And the characters that we do follow are pretty flat, I'm not going to lie. The main guy, the colonel, I can't remember his name right now. I didn't write it down, but man, he's bland. Yeah. Everyone who's not from the first movie in this one is just a black hole to me. 
There is there is one character that I I liked. Um, it was the female lead. Um, let me refer to my notes for her name. Um, oh, it's a uh, Mickey Mizuno, right? Uh, is that the actress? Who plays Mid- actresses? Yeah, name? who plays Midori? Yes, Midori. Yeah, Midori. Yeah. I I like. She was the one. She was the one character that I that I liked, and it was because she. Um, she plays her character very soft-spoken and almost shy, like it reads as shy, but she's also always the smartest person in the room. Um, and I appreciated that about her. I liked that character, but the rest I can barely remember. I, uh, I kind of liked her too. Again, I just didn't find her particularly compelling. Uh, a big, a little bit of a note for anybody who's listening who might be a J-horror fan, Mickey Mizuno would later go on to play the slit-mouthed woman in the movie Carved. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, at the very least, the creature stuff does deliver in this, and I'm very fond, especially, of anything involving the human-sized Legion creatures. Yeah. Yeah, like, especially that subway sequence. It's genuinely creepy. Anything with, like, swarms of buggy things gets under my skin. The the subway sequence is um, genuinely upsetting. In that it also hits you with some unexpected gore. Uh, when the um, uh, the uh, the I guess he's the the what do you call it? the engineer or whatever the guy who drives a train. Yeah. <laughs> What'd you call him? An the engineer? conductor. Conductor. Thank you. Yeah. When he gets killed, there's a giant splash of blood splattered <laughs> everywhere, and I was like, I forgot that that happened, and I was like, Jesus Christ! <laughs> like, I'm used to seeing like green blood in these movies, but I was not prepared for the human blood. You know, it's yeah, and it's like the only time in these movies that there's actual human gore. Yeah, it kind of feels like Kaneko looked around for a minute, realized nobody was watching, and just splattered blood <laughs> against <Yeah>. the. <laughs> speaking of speaking of blood, what I what I really thought was interesting about the Legion um, creatures, and they especially show it in like the smaller human sized ones, is that they have no blood. Their blood is is gas like i think the i think the idea is that they they convert silicon to oxygen and then inside their bodies compressed oxygen is like what moves them around i think um but so you get these really cool shots where like they get shot and it's just a spray of gas like they they don't bleed they just like they like spring gas leaks which i thought was really interesting and they're um i think you would call it pneumatic locomotion is kind of similar to how actual spiders work because spiders have blood, but they don't have uh, bones or muscle. They move their legs by pumping blood at varying pressures through their legs to move around. Uh, so I just thought it was like, a, I never thought of something being like powered by gas, like an organic thing being powered by gas. But I thought that was a really neat little like creature detail that they gave to them. Yeah, generally speaking, I'm pretty impressed with the biology and design of Legion. If it has any shortcomings for me, it's that being a big bug, it lacks any personality. Yeah, for sure. Which, like, going from the Jouse, which are just total bastards, Mm -hmm. and especially into the next movie, which is Iris, um, it definitely makes Legion the least, both the most impressive, conceptually speaking, but also the least interesting as a character. Yeah. I agree. Um, this one, I think, has the most anime. I think it's in this one. Now, I said they weren't running together, but now I'm 
forgetting which battle this is in. But I, I think this has the most anime moment out of all three films. And it's when Gamera, like, flies in really fast, lands in a skid, and then is, like, skidding through the city, shooting fireballs at the Legion creature, which I just thought was super badass, and I loved it, and I just loved how blatantly, like, over-the-top and anime-inspired it was. I'm pretty sure when I first saw that, when I was, like, 13 years old, I screamed. Yeah, that's, like, a pump-your-fist kind of, like, yeah. <laughs> moment. Yeah, I... I really, really dug that. Anytime they did anything that was remotely like anime esque, I was I was ultra invested in what was happening on screen. I was happy that we got there. There was a bit of like nighttime action in the first one, but I was really happy we had a nighttime fight in this one because I, I love the first movie's battle sequences, but I, I just prefer a little bit more atmosphere. I'm not a huge fan of big daylight fights. Yeah. So uh, the last fight with Legion in this is pretty impressive even if it gets a little stale it kind of enters the realm of being a bit of a beam war at a certain point but it does but man it's it's so cool because <laughs> because legion's beams are like tentacle whips like they're like hand animated yeah. like cell animated tentacle whips which oh i love it like like i mean gamma gets real messed up in that fight but like those just the I don't even know how to describe them. They look like lasers with like little bladed tips on them, but they're animated, not CGI, like traditional animation. It's, it's wild looking, but it's really cool. Yeah. You know what? While watching these ones this time around, it made me think, is there any Kaiju who's been in more than one movie? Who's taken more physical punishment than Gamera? I don't think so, man. He gets his ass kicked. But but in the best possible way because, you know, it's like, you know, when you're watching a wrestling match, it's it's not fun if the guy you like just wins the whole time. You know, you you want to you want to have the the ups and downs of the fight. So because Gamera is adorable and when he gets hit, it's heartbreaking. When he comes back from it, it's that much more exciting, you know. It's it's so well crafted, so well constructed the way they tell a story in each fight that way. Yeah, definitely. It's um, it's kind of the reverse of a lot of Godzilla fights, where Godzilla is usually the bigger out of the two monsters. Gamera's almost always the smaller one. Yeah. At least against his big bad, like he'll always fight like swarms of Joust, which are smaller than him. But more often than not, when it comes to the big third act fight, he's the underdog, which I love. They actually they went out of their way to say that the um the like Uber Gauss creature is bigger than Gamera because I think they said that in the first film Gamera is 60 meters tall and then the the Gauss is the final Gauss he fights is 80 meters tall I think which is as tall as Godzilla in Godzilla Returns oh. I did not know that that's awesome I don't know why I here's the thing I don't know why I rem I'm terrible at remembering numbers Seb but if they're related to a monster <laughs> then I remember them but uh yeah, they, they, they specific... Well, there was something about in Godzilla Returns where um, uh, I think Ikafube made the joke where he's like, I only score movies for uh, for 60-meter monsters, not 80-meter monsters or something like that. <laughs> uh, so that's why it stuck in my head that Godzilla was 80 meters. But um, I think I think the first film is the only one where they go out of their way to say like how big Gamera is and how big his opponent is. But um, I don't know, that stuck with me just because I was like, oh, he's smaller than... 
Heisei Godzilla, but the his enemy is as big as Heisei Godzilla. And keeping Gamera relatively on the smaller side really helps with the scale of these movies. These movies never lose their sense of scale. If no. anything, they improve as they go along. Absolutely. They they do a lot of... The shots that I find the most impressive are the... And every movie has them, are these really, really far away shots where the camera is, you know, like a mile away from the monster action. And then, you know, if when you're just looking at it, you're like, yeah, these, these are big monsters. That makes sense. But if you start working through the logistics of everything I'm seeing on screen right now is a model. So how many models are there between the camera and the monsters fighting that far away? Because the monsters are just specks on the screen. It's like, oh my God, like what trickery are they using to like, or are, is some of this actual photography and some of it's a model? Like it's, it's seamless. Even as a special effects person, it's kind of mind fucky for me to try to figure out where things begin and end. Um, and they do clever things too. I don't know if you noticed this. There's almost always human beings, at least at the beginning of a fight to help with the scale. They, they superimpose them or composite them into windows they put them on walkways so that you can see how big the monsters are compared to a human being. Cause really that's, or they show my, some of my favorite shots are when they show ground level and there will be people in the foreground and the background. And then between them, a monster will burst up through the ground. Um, Cause which means that like the back part is a plate of people. The front part is a like blue screen plate of people. And then in between them is a miniature, a miniature so good that you don't realize it's a miniature until a monster smashes through it. <laughs> it's insanely well done. Yeah, it's... You know, I, I'm obviously glad he ended up doing these instead, but it really makes me wonder what it would have been like if Higuchi had been effects director for Toho instead. Then again, he would have been rushed and unable to do half the stuff he wanted to do, but yeah, for makes sure. you think. Yeah. One design element of Gamera that I want to touch upon is... Traditionally, in the original Showa-era movies, he just had, like, fire breath. He just shot, like, a flamethrower out of his mouth. In this, they give him, like, these plasma balls mm -hmm. that he just belts out. And, man, they're satisfying. There's very few things that are satisfying seeing one of those things hit a monster and watching it explode. I love it so much. Absolutely. I love the, the Gamera fireballs. And I love every weird new ability they give him in the movies. Um... Which this one, he he never does it again. But in this one, the way he defeats Legion is he pulls his chest open like he's the Giver, and like just like a beam of energy shoots out of his chest. It's so freaky. It's so weird. Uh, he's never done it before. He's never done it since. But it was super badass. Whatever it was. <laughs> so the movie ended up being a really big success in Japan. Like huge it won it was the first daikaiju film giant monster movie to win the uh japanese nebula award back oh. in 1996 this caused a bit of a kerfuffle apparently because uh it started a bit of a debate in the japanese sci-fi community with a lot of critics arguing that it signaled the decline of japanese sci-fi culture what what why yeah that <laughs> What's the... because sci-fi snobs hate giant monster movies i guess that's bizarre because i would think that they would love them especially where they were headed and where they ended up where you they really started sinking into the minutiae of 
if these creatures were, and I guess these movies don't do it. And that's part of the reason I like them, honestly. So maybe they're onto something. I don't know. But like the, you know, eventually by the time you get to Shin Godzilla, Kaiju movies are like getting into the weeds with the science of it. Like what's it really like if something this big comes to, comes to shore? What, you know, what does, what sort of military weaponry has to be used? Like what are the logistics of if this happened? Um, which the Heisei Godzilla movies do for better or worse. I think it bogs the movies down, but that's the sort of stuff that sci-fi nerds really sink their teeth into usually. So it's, it's interesting to me. Maybe, maybe it's like the spiritual side of it. Like the, you know, Gamera being an, uh, uh, the spirit of the earth and stuff like that, that they don't get into. Yeah, that is, um, something I was waiting to discuss in the third movie, but I do want to touch upon it now. Uh, Comparatively speaking, and I do feel like it's something that is very near and dear to Kaneko because he touches upon it in his Godzilla movie as well. These are very mythic movies. They are far more spiritually focused than they are scientifically focused. And it definitely gives them something. It's really hard for me to explain it, but it gives them this tone and vibe that is just because it makes the monsters feel even grander than For sure. if they were. The entire that entire tone and idea lends to this feeling of awe when you see the monsters, and 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 it's even reflected in the human characters. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you see fear and stuff, but a lot of times when the main characters, especially you know Asagi and whoever is near her at the time while she's watching the kaiju carnage go down, like there's a level of like just just they're awestruck at, at these creatures, that these creatures could exist. Um, and it bleeds out of the, the TV or out of the movie screen. And like, it, it affects you while you're watching. Like I, I was in awe of Gamera <laughs> in all three movies. Well, unless you have anything more to add about Legion, I think it's time to move on to what I consider, you know, oh God, I fucking love Gamera three. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, man. Go ahead. Okay. So, yeah. Big success, and obviously that means another movie. Uh, It took three years to make, and boy, can you tell they use that time well. Uh, Gamera 3, Revenge of Iris, or Awakening of Iris, as it's known in Japan, is about uh, Yana, a young girl played by A. Maida, who ended up being a pretty prolific uh, voice actress after this who forms a psychic bond with a demonic, horrible, tentacled mutation called Iris, which feeds off her hatred for Gamera, who she blames for the death of her parents. I'm going to praise this movie a lot, so (laughs) before I jump into that, I will pass it over to Dustin. So this movie, this is the one that I remembered as being my least favorite. Um... Which that's not true anymore. I, I like it better than Legion. But I will say this. For the first 30 minutes, I was like, ah, I don't know about this. This is too dark. I, like, Gamera looks scary now. They changed the design. Uh, I don't know if I want... And it's also knowing that it's the end of this trilogy. It's like, I don't know if I want this to end on such a dark you know, atmosphere. Like it's really oppressive. It's very sad. There's a lot of tragedy, but by the end it had won me over. And I, and I, I love this movie. Now I, guardian of the universe is still my favorite of the three. 
um, because it's so easy to watch. But this one, there were things I forgot about it um, that happened and surprised me. It's it's excellent. It's an excellent giant monster movie. I do think it's a little weird as a Gamera movie, especially compared to the other two. But as a as a kaiju flick, it's pretty exceptional, and I don't think anyone's ever done anything quite like it. And now, <laughs> so and now as... Seb splooges all over Gamera three. So anybody who knows me, and I hope that it's more than just people who know me who listen to this, <laughs> but anyone who knows me knows that for as I'm a fairly lighthearted guy, I'm pretty silly and pretty goofy. I'm also a total fucking weird edgelord at heart, <laughs> and like. Gamera 3 is so angsty and so grim and so awesome and it still manages to have a lot of hopefulness in it which is kind of if you watch these movies all together I'd say that the recurring theme through all of them is hope and faith faith is especially huge in this one uh we get most of our returning cast we have uh uh, Asagi coming back, playing a bit more of a pivotal role than she once did. Osako, who is now, you know, he's more or less a homeless man in this one. Well, I couldn't tell drawn if, he back. Was, if he was homeless or if he was just, like, selling newspapers on the street. I wasn't sure what was going on, but either way, there's been a downturn. Uh, somebody, some jerk came by and sprayed gray spray paint in his hair. I don't know who did that, but... <laughs> yeah... He, uh, the gray hair was an interesting choice, but <laughs> what can you do? It's fine. I just thought it was funny. Like, I didn't notice it until there was, like, a closer scene. I was like, oh, his hair wasn't gray. They just sprayed that in. <laughs> um, Shinobu Nakayama comes back as Mayumi, uh, who continues her research on jousts, which are becoming a bigger problem in this movie, at uh, the point of time where this story takes place. And on top of all that, we get some really cool new characters, which the other one was lacking, in my opinion. Uh, I already mentioned Ayana, our antagonist slash, slash protagonist, who is just an angry, angry girl. Yeah, very and angry. And causes a lot of problems. I know a lot of people seem to find her annoying and don't like this movie for her. Really? Yeah, I didn't know she was kind of a divisive character till I started you know, made the mistake of browsing some message boards. You should never um, do that. <laughs> I know, but I, I'm a hor I'm horrible. Um, so, uh, but I think it's a brilliant performance, especially considering the fact that I Maida was so young playing it. It's a very nuanced, complex role to hand to a young person, especially. Honestly, I thought all the young actors in this were really good, especially her... And I don't understand how people could dislike her because she is the, I don't know, we can get into it. I'll let, I'll let you continue, but that I, I yeah. didn't know that that was a thing, and I'm kind of irritated that that's a thing, but you go ahead. Some of the, uh, well, some, two of the most interesting additions to the cast are Senri Yamasaki <laughs> as Mito, and uh, one of my favorite Japanese actors, uh, Toru Tezuka as Shinya. Uh, who are, I guess, our human villains of the movie. And man, are they bizarre. They're not really... Uh, 
they're not really villains though they're just like i don't know dude <laughs> They're like, I don't know. They're like not villains, but they're both playing it like they are the villains. Well, Mito is like obsessed with killing Gamera. She thinks he's an evil spirit of some kind. Yeah. And Shinya seems to be some kind of an anarchist who just likes seeing shit go down. He's like a weird like chaos worshiper or something. I don't know what his deal is. Um, but he's awesome. I love those characters. The reason I don't, I don't see them as villains, especially her, is because she... Like, I think she wants to do right. She's just incorrect about the way to do right, which I guess is how real villains are. Um, he never does anything overtly villainous. He just talks and acts like a villain. I know. It's, you know what? That is a great example of somebody taking a pretty plain character on paper and turning them into the weirdest part of the movie. <laughs> He's very weird. Um, oh, I always love that actor. He's great in Meatball Machine, and uh, it's a bit part in Shin Godzilla, but I always liked him in that quite a bit. Uh, no, I don't know. These are strange characters because they ultimately don't serve that much of a purpose narratively, but I'm constantly invested when they're involved on screen. Yeah, they... um. They, they dole out what I would call, like, speculative uh, exposition, where, like, they throw an exposition that may or may not be true, but it's, like, their idea on it. Like, the idea with Shinya's character is that he's supposed to be, like, the last or one of the last descendants of the civilization that created Gamera. Okay, I didn't even I, catch that. I had to, like, read that somewhere to find out. Okay. Yeah, um... Maybe it was part of an earlier draft and it got ditched at somewhere down the line. Uh, all I know is that they're pretty interesting additions to the cast who really sell this theme of clashing faiths. You've got Asagi and Mayumi on one side, and then you've got Mito and Shinya on the other side, with Ayana kind of stuck in the middle, being driven down one path by her uh, because of her hatred for Gamera. So, yeah, what I love is that on one hand you've got Mayumi and Asagi on one end of the spectrum, and then you've got Shinya and Mito on the other, and Ayana kind of stuck in the middle, being driven down the darker path by her hatred for Gamera. Well, then there's also the concept of um, the, the Moribe family, mm -hmm. and their, like, conservatorship of, like, guarding uh iris's resting place and like the the thing they bring up i mean it's another like element of faith and uh, uh religion in mythology um like this whole thing based around like an ancient chinese calendar which it's only mentioned in one scene but um uh moribe the uh i never caught his first name but he uh um ends up playing an important role later on in the movie Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where the movie could have almost lost me, honestly, because it felt like one layer too many in terms of, like, world building. I agree, and I kind of wish that they would have found a way to tie it back into, like, the Atlantean origins of Gamera instead of adding, like, one more layer of, like, oh, but it could be this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should also, I guess, touch upon our monsters this time, because 
Gamera's pretty different this time around, as you mentioned briefly. In this film, Gamera has basically lost his patience with humankind. It's got something to do with the mana or energy that the Earth's giving him, and I guess like humanity's just distrust of him, but he's way more aggressive, and the design reflects that. He is a much meaner looking monster. Yeah, they his eyes are smaller. Um he has he's angular now. He has like spikes. His shell is no longer smooth. It's like segmented and the segments like move around. Um sometimes in a really cool way like when he transforms to like flight mode, mm -hmm. they like shift around and stuff, which I thought was really cool. Um I thought that so in Attack of Legion, mm -hmm. uh there's a moment where you you think Gamera is dead and then um Asagi manages to um, like channel power into Gamera to like bring him back for the final battle. But when she does it, the um, the bead that she has, which there's a Japanese word for it that I've forgotten now, uh, it breaks. And then when, in this film, we see that there those beads are, you know, they they found them all over Gamera uh, when they thought he was an atoll in the first film, but they're all like decaying and falling apart. Um, so it feels like that loss of connection, um, maybe Asagi was like Gamera's last connection to humanity. And when her bead broke is when he kind of reverted back to the weapon version of himself and lost whatever humanity was inside of him. Yeah. You know, I hadn't thought of that. You're probably completely right but at the same time later on in the movie we're shown that Gamera does still care so. yeah which threw me off because it's kind of like in uh, Biolante when they're like Erica's spirit is no longer there and then they're like just kidding it is <laughs> yeah so I, I, I kind of was thrown off by that but um, there's probably something philosophical in there that I'm missing that happens that restores Gamera's like connection to humanity. Yeah, and that see that doesn't bother me too much because another reason I why I really love this movie is because it is one of those movies that's more focused on symbolism, on like philosophical concepts than it is on anything that's narratively logical. It's yeah. just it's a movie about feeling. And uh man, this movie brings out some feels. I uh <laughs> I love Iris, and it's one of my favorite kaiju villains because it's kind of pretty. Like, it's yeah. very uh, slick and very angular, and you colorful. look at it... Yeah, very colorful. You look at it, and you could see why someone would consider that the hero, more heroish looking creature. And it's also just like... Personality-wise, you wouldn't think it'd have much of a personality because of the way its head is designed, which I can't really describe. It's pointy. It's a pointy yeah. face. Yeah. Um, but there's a scene where, for lack of a better word, it seduces Ayana, and you just feel that scumbag wiggling his way into her heart. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I think he, he wiggles his way into the audience's heart a little bit, too, because like if you know, it's hard to watch the movie... Maybe they, I think maybe they're trying to throw us a switcheroo, but like you know, it's completely lost on you and me. But 
they're, they're, we're going to present Gamera and he's mean now and he doesn't care as much about casualties and um, he does save one kid in that in that Shibuya disaster but um, they present maybe Gamera's going to be the bad guy and maybe this new cute monster is going to be the good guy I think maybe there's an element they were trying to put mm -hmm. forward there but of course you and I just by virtue of having seen the movie before know that that's not the case you can't trick us with that um, but the baby, so when you first meet Iris, Iris is, is in a, like a stone egg and it hatches and inside it's this cute little snail thing. Like it has a little snail shell, has a cute little face with cute eyes. And like the first indication that it might not be so cute actually is, um, uh, she, uh, uh, what's her, what, uh, Ayana, Ayana brings yeah. it, uh, brings Iris some food. And she realizes, like, oh, Iris has no mouth. But then a spike comes out of one of Iris's appendages, and he sucks the food dry like a vampire. And that's kind of the like, oh no, that's not <laughs> that's not what nice monsters do. <laughs> Nothing good's gonna come from that. Yeah, I hadn't considered that, but you're probably right. They probably wanted you to kind of you know, see this cute little beady-eyed bastard and think, oh, what a what a swell fella. I'm going to root for him and then, like, make him the worst possible thing you've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. Going back to the moment, I'm happy you mentioned it, uh, when Gamera saves the kid during the Joust attack on Shibuya, I think the idea, and they, they kind of return to this towards the end, no matter what, Gamera can sense purity and goodness and wants to protect that you know in the 60s and 70s movies Gamera's whole deal was he was the friend of all children right yeah so I feel like this is probably a throwback to that but they did it in a way that was a little bit more meaningful instead of stupid oh shit Seb you know what that completely tracks because so the way the it's it's oh, I didn't even realize this until right now that scene is a mirror of a scene in Guardian of the Universe so the way that Gamera protects the kid in, in Eris is he holds his hand over the Gauss's beam. The Gauss have the, this sonic beam that can cut through things. And, and Gamera takes it on the hand to protect a kid who's underneath him. In Guardian of the Universe, Gamera does the exact same thing on the bridge with our two main characters. But it's not just our two main characters. They're saving a kid. Right, right. I, I did not realize that until right now. <laughs> Damn, you see, so it works. Yeah. It's like poetry, it rhymes. It rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a better trilogy than that trilogy. Anyhow, yeah, yeah, yeah. so... <laughs> um, Listen, Gamera's a funnier character than we've ever had before. If we can get him working... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sitting in the screening room with the die execs looking at Revenge of the Earth. Yeah, I may have gone a little far in some spots. <laughs> uh, so something that I really love about the finale of this movie and I'm happy to reach this point this is the point during the whole episode I've been excited to get to is we get to see two giant monsters fight indoors yeah it's yeah. awesome it's really, it's really cool uh, I don't know what that structure was exactly could you tell what it was I thought it was like a stadium of some sort. Okay, okay, it may have been because um, I mean the first film has a stadium too, but um, 
Yeah, it didn't strike me until like near the end. I was like, oh, there's a roof over their head. That's interesting. You never see that, which would have made the scale even harder to to um, to translate to to translate to the audience what the scale difference should be between the humans and and the monsters. But they do a great job. They do a lot of great like foreground composites to make sure you understand where everyone is in relation to each other with the exception of um i don't remember her name the villain lady oh uh, yeah uh mito her death is really sloppy and it's one of the only sloppy moments in the entire trilogy yeah and to be honest it, it took this time watching it to even realize she dies in that scene i'm just assuming she does because there's like a collapse and they they like overlay her scream over another shot mm-hmm but I was like, why didn't they? Sh I mean, it's very clear that the other guy dies. Her her counterpart dies because he has that. What's he has it, the what's greatest it? moment in the entire movie. What's his line, Seb, right before he dies? Oh, this is scary. <laughs> <laughs> Although and then just girders fall on his head. I don't know if that's the correct translation or not, because I remember the old release that I used to watch. He says, oh, so this is what fear is, huh? And hmm. I was... So I don't know which it is, but oh, this is scary is way funnier. Yeah, it's very funny. His performance is really funny in that moment, too. Yeah, he loves it. He loves the fact that he's about to get crushed. <laughs> yeah. He's just decided that's a cool way to die, and he's he's all right with it. He feels like an anime character more than anybody else. In all oh, three. 100%. Even just his look. Like, yes. He kept waiting for his glasses to illuminate for no reason. He is a very very sebish looking character for sure this whole movie is very like i i say this to seb a lot like oh this movie is very sebby like about just different things or whatever this movie is so the the only thing that would make it more sebby is if it had a monster girl and it kind of kind of does a little bit but, but like if it had a pure like monster girl it would be the most sebby movie ever made but what well, you um, know what for, for the sake of context what what makes something a sebby movie there, there's a lot of factors, Seb. Um, it, anything gothic uh, is part of it, but not even gothic in the tr in like the straight, strict traditional sense of like castles and and thing in mm -hmm. mansions and things like that. Just if it has a gothic feel, that's Sebi. Um, if the villains monologue and act like maniacs, that that makes it Sebi. The presence of monsters, the present those monsters having tentacles. Um, the presence of monster goop, the presence of monster girls, uh, strong female lead characters. Uh, there's a lot of things. It's it's easier to detect than it is to explain, but this is a yeah. very, very sebby movie. And, and now that the listeners have context for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, and I'm glad you brought it up, though, because it's another thing that makes me love this movie the most interesting characters in it are all women. Yes. And that is true of the entire trilogy for the most part. This it might be... It passes Bechtel. It does. And, you know, I never even thought of it till this time around, and I didn't even know if I was going to bring it up or not. But, yeah, each of these movies passes the Bechtel test. Yep, for sure. Which, for a 90s-era Japanese sci-fi movie, is insane. It's that's awesome. why that's why I like the female lead in, in Attack of Legion because she she subverts a trope. Mm -hmm. She's a like she's a mousy, quiet, you know, small Japanese woman. But in every scene, without raising her voice, without like 
without like overtly being masculine in any way, she asserts authority by just by virtue of like, she knows what she's talking about. She's, she is, and not in like a, um, what's the, I, I hate the term, but like Mary Sue, not in a Mary Sue yeah. kind of way. She, she, um, she just is believably intelligent and speaks up when she knows she's right about something. And, um, that's why I appreciate that character, but all these movies 100% have, um, not only strong female leads, but pretty much an entire lack of forced romance. It's yeah. not really there, uh, which I appreciate too. And, and not that I'm against romance in movies, but, um, when a movie, you know, doesn't need it and therefore doesn't utilize it. I always appreciate that because American movies especially tend to cram it in where it doesn't belong. Yeah. Something I'm glad you brought that up because this movie, especially watching it this time around made me realize that each of them displays strong professional relationships with men and women and strong friendships with men and women, especially, uh, the two examples in this for me were Mayumi and her one scene with Mr. Saito where he's like, can you believe they've made me their expert on giant monsters? <laughs> yeah. And and her entire relationship with Osaka where she pretty much rescues him from like a bad spout of depression and tries to show him that he's worth something. It's yeah. amazing how healthy and well-balanced a lot of the interactions in these movies are with the characters. Yeah, for sure. I... I appreciated that by the time it was getting to the end of of um iris and like really thinking about it uh um because it feels so natural while you're watching the movies that it doesn't stick out it doesn't feel preachy or anything but um it's it's appreciated like i i appreciate that that i don't even know if they did it on purpose or if that's maybe just the way the writer feels about things and the director feels the same way i don't know but uh it's it's kind of refreshing Especially mm -hmm. in movies that are, you know, closing in on being, you know, 30 years old, Guardian of the Universe, 26 yeah. years old right now. Yeah. Um, and now, uh, I already warned people, there would be spoilers, but spoiler alert again, because I'm going to go really, really into the ending of this movie. Okay, go for it, do it. Gamera almost gets fucking killed by Iris. He blows his own arm off at one point because Iris has pinned it down with a tentacle. Uh, luckily, he creates a plasma fist and oh blows Iris up. The plasma fist is so good. <laughs> I know, it's so awesome, dude. It's like, oh my god. I didn't even understand why it happened, but I loved it. <laughs> it happened by... I don't know, dude. It's power. It's just so power. I, I love it so much. <laughs> um, he defeats Iris. Ayana sees the error of her ways. And you think the movie's getting on a pretty happy note. But then, a swarm of jousts start to descend. Gamera, who's really badly injured, wanders off into the city and waits for them to arrive to fight them off regardless of if he's going to win or not. And the movie ends there on this note of uncertainty. And... Man, even talking about it gives me, like, major chills. It ends, like, <laughs> the, the flames come over the screen. It says, Gamera, absolute guardian of the universe. And it's, oof, what a doozy. So that that very ending is one of the things that made me not, not really like the film originally. But this time watching it, I interpreted it in a completely different way. Um, before, I had seen it as, like, this nihilistic, like, 
pessimistic, like, well, this is the end of it. Like, Gamera stopped Eris, but guess what? Here comes 400 Gauss, because it's like literally 400 Gauss that comes swarming in. Um, this time I, 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 I took it a little differently, because before that happens, they cut to the military, and the military, who the, the entire movie has been focusing all fire on Gamera. Even in, when Gamera is fighting Eris, the military is like, no, Gamera's the threat. Take Gamera out. Right as the Gauss are, are coming in, the military goes, Gamera's not the threat. Gauss is the enemy. And that shift, and then Gamera, like, trudging out to do his duty as, you know, Guardian of the Universe, I think, is... It's silly because he doesn't guard the universe. He specifically guards Earth. <laughs> but, but the you know, I, I took it a different way. To me, it felt hopeful this time, especially with the theme of like Gamera's connection to humanity. Because you have to imagine, maybe they should have done just a little bit more to show that like the connection to humanity was coming back. But I have to believe that when the when the military decides that he's a friend and not a foe that the connection gets stronger and maybe Gamera can take on 400 Gauss with the help of the military. So I saw it a little more hopeful this time than I had. I mean, I used to watch that movie and get to the ending and think it was positively apocalyptic. Like I was like, this is the end. They're fucked. Like what was the point of all this? And that's what made me not like the movie. So I took it a little different this time, a little more hopeful this time. Again, I think like the ending, just like the rest of the movie works better thematically than it does logically like i think that in my mind at least gamma's probably going to lose but i don't think that's the point i think the point is that regardless of if he's going to lose or not he doesn't give up it keeps that theme of faith and hope going and i think you're supposed to draw optimism from the fact that no matter what happens he's not going to stop trying yeah and i feel like that is probably the strongest note they could have ended this trilogy on and again it and like you mentioned it ends on the note that humanity has accepted Gamera as their ally and so that kind of arc of is he our friend is he our enemy comes to a close in a very hopeful way I think that it's very easy to take it as a pessimistic ending I've seen people call this movie nihilistic I don't think it is at all I don't think it is either. I think I think it's easy to misinterpret it that way because I mean I've I've misinterpreted it that way before, but this time watching, you know, at least fifteen years separated from the last time I watched it, I felt very differently. Yeah, uh, the film did do very well. It received tons of critical praise. Once again, especially in the West, where it uh, premiered in Toronto, the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, people almost immediately were saying it was the best kaiju movie since the original Godzilla. I am of also that opinion. <laughs> it's my favorite non-Godzilla kaiju movie, probably. I go back and forth between this one and Gamera the Brave. Yeah, I love them about equally for very different reasons. And they couldn't be more different, those movies. They, they, it's my two personalities clashing. <laughs> yeah, it really yeah. is. Um, uh, despite that... Uh, Kanako, Higuchi, and Ito would not get to make a fourth Gamera movie, probably by their own choice, I believe, uh, more so than anything. Uh, that being said, attempts were made. Dae approached um, Toho about doing a Gamera versus Godzilla movie, which Toho immediately said no to. They had no interest in doing that. 
Anybody who's holding out hope for that, it's not going to happen. I'm very sorry. Uh, they attempted another reboot in 2006, which was the kid-friendly Gamera the Brave, which we will cover in a later episode. That didn't do well, and Gamera has kind of stayed dormant since then. Which is a bummer, because I feel like now is probably the best possible time to bring him back. I Yeah, I, I think I'm fine with that dormant period, but I, I think it's time to... I think we need to see another Gamera movie. Um, I, I As I was watching these movies, I, I started to like question like i'm a i'm a godzilla fan i i love godzilla i will always love godzilla i don't know if i like him more than i like gamera i i i I struggle with it because i i think that gamera has the advantage of having fewer movies and therefore i think a larger percentage of his movies are are great than than godzilla movies are great especially since Gamera has at least three amazing films, four amazing films in my opinion, but I know Gamera the Brave can be divisive with people. I love Gamera the Brave. Um, I think as just like a character, as a kaiju, I maybe like Gamera a little better than, than Godzilla, which feels weird to say, but I think maybe I do. I'm going to piss some people off here. I think with the exception of Shin Godzilla... Godzilla does not have a movie that is as good as any of the three, how you say, Gamera films. Man, I don't know. I don't know about that. That's rough. That's hard. Because, <laughs> I know. Because <laughs> are you are you saying aside from the original Godzilla? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. I, I, I put Gojira, the original movie, on a completely different pedestal. Okay, like, okay. yeah. Then that is, that is I, I can... I can groove to that a little more because I was like, man, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. Kojira is, is astounding. Um, I think the, I mean, oddly enough, I think the only Godzilla movie besides the original that comes close is the one that Kaneko directed. Um, yeah. But that's me. That's because GMK is like my, that's my, that's my jam. That's my shit. Yeah, I adore GMK as well. But you can tell he had a little less freedom on it. He was a little more tight in terms of scheduling. And uh, it's probably just... It's it's not quite as rich of a movie as any of the three Gamera films are. You know, the thing about GMK is I think it gets... It peaks in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then the last battle isn't nearly as good as anything that came before it. Whereas all the Gamera movies have spectacular finales. Yes. the The final battle in all of them have weight behind them they're deftly executed like the i cannot get over the execution of the of the vfx and the practical effects in these movies is it just me i don't i hate to circle back like this but it just sprung to mind is it just me or does gamma 3 have really good cgi for the time most of the time it does there there were things that i was like how were they doing this in 1999 yeah um for anyone who doesn't know like one of my the many things that I do in my life is I, I'm an animator and I'm a visual effects artist. And um, there were things happening in Revenge of Eris that where I was like, how I don't think you could do that in 99. How were they able to do that? Because, I mean, let's put it in context. What the big special effects movie of the world in 1999 was The Matrix. Yeah. And the thing that has aged the 
the worst in the Matrix is the CGI. It's still not terrible, but it's it it does not hold up. I would say 70 to 80% of the CGI in Revenge of Eras holds up to the standards of today, um, which is bonkers because the movie was made over 20 years ago. And the the one that really got me are there's a well there's a couple but the flight sequences where they're above the clouds, yeah, and Gamera um, flies by pulling at least two limbs into his shell sometimes all four but at least two, and then like basically rocket shoot out of the holes and he flies that way sometimes as a UFO sometimes as just like a his his arms turn into fins and he flies that way, but he emits light. And the light he was emitting from his thrusters, whatever you call them, were, was illuminating and passing through the cloud cover. That is hard to do now. I have no idea how they were doing it. My brain could not process it. I was sitting there going, Did, okay, so are the monsters CG, but the background is real? Like maybe that's cotton and wool and they're shining light through it. How are they doing it? Because the, the atmospheric effects required to make the clouds did not exist in 1999 i can't wrap my head around it Seb. like i i it was it was fucking with my head i could not figure it out um but i will say this there are moments specifically when iris is fully cgi that look pretty rough Mm -hmm. um a lot of times iris's tentacles when they're cgi and it's not so much the way they look it's the way they move uh-huh. That is not great, but they but they also don't always do CGI tentacles. They there are definitely shots where the tentacles are a real element that's small that's being filmed like upside down and waved around and then composited into the shot to look like it's waving tentacles. They do really clever stuff, but I would say yes, <laughs> seventy to eighty percent of the effects are mind blowingly good. The CGI gauss look really good. Yeah. Uh, um, all the composite shots look really good. I, man, I don't know what secret sauce they were using in Japan in 1999 or like, there's no chance they redid any of these effects for the Blu-ray, right? No, none. That's how they always looked. That's how they always look. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, there's, I mean, some of it I'm like, yeah, I get, I get what they're doing, but there's stuff in there where I was like, I have no idea what they're doing here. I don't know how they did this. Yeah. For those who own the, um, or who are interested in picking up the Arrow video Blu-ray box set, which is what we watched these on. Um, there is like there are a lot of lengthy interviews with Higuchi and Kanako on them. Maybe they touch upon that. I'm either way, have to go back and watch. Either way, I recommend watching them because man, they're uh, they're an odyssey onto themselves. Just hearing how they went from film to film, like basically nonstop from 1995 onward. So yeah, that's the uh, that's the '90s Gamera trilogy. I think that they're as good as kaiju movies get, and uh, I think kaiju movies kind of peaked at Gamera three for a bit until Shin Godzilla came out. I think you're right. I mean, I would put Shin Godzilla right up there with them, um, but I also know that you and I are somewhat unique in that opinion. Shin Godzilla has its detractors. I, I don't know. I think it, I think that's a perfect movie, and we will cover it at some point. Yeah, I mean, we have to. Um, Oh, I wanted to bring something up, Seb. Mm-hmm. Guess where I recognize Inspector Osako from? GMK? No. But oh. I, I, I know he's in GMK. Yeah. It's not, it's not a Kaneko movie. Is it another kaiju movie? No. Okay, if what you, is it? Okay. He's Gonza in Garo. 
Oh my god, he is. Yeah, he's 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 uh Koga's butler. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. Yes, yes. that's what that's what it, uh, if anyone doesn't know Garo or Garo or, or Garu, whatever you want to call it is a is a midnight tokusatsu series by Kita Amamiya that Seb and I both like and, and bonded over and um uh, it's exceptionally it's it's good. It's a really good series, at least the first couple seasons. And uh, yeah, he plays the main character's butler, Gonza. And that's how I, I kept staring at him in Guardian of the Verse. Like, why do I know that guy? And then I, I realized that he was Gonza. The last thing I saw him in was he was also the lead in Rego or Rega, one of those low-budget kaiju movies. Oh, that yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's the lead in one of them. But yeah, like, man, I can't believe uh, that's that's messing with me now. It's going to be crazy never... the next time you watch Garrow, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, there he is. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, uh, those are my thoughts. Do you have any final words? Um, I don't think so. Just that, I mean, I, I hope we didn't make a boring episode just because we both love these so much. But um, I didn't even have a lot of notes. Like, I had so many right. notes on the Godzilla movies. I barely had notes on these because it was just like they were easy to easy to process. I didn't they're very memorable. So it wasn't like I was trying to remind myself of stuff like, yeah, just to echo what you said, you, you, if you're looking for a kaiju movie, don't watch these first. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will ruin them for you. They will ruin <laughs> kaiju movies for you because nothing is as good. Really hardly anything is as good. Um, but if you're a kaiju fan and you've kind of, uh, missed out on these because like, you're like, Oh, gamma, whatever. I don't care about gamma. Or maybe you just didn't have access to them. Do yourself a favor either dig up the old um whoever put out the the old set either echo bridge or mill creek whoever it was find that one or or get the arrow one or whatever the the arrow release is really really good um and watch these things because they are they're just excellent you, you can't you really can't beat them you know i think that puts a cap on it uh for those of you who did find this episode boring don't worry dustin and i will argue at some point i promise <laughs> uh And don't worry, this will not be the last time you hear us ramble on about stuff we love either if you did enjoy it. So thank you for tuning in, and uh, we will see you next time. THK, THK, THK.